I just love what you do for me. You're so reliable, smart and incredibly well-connected. <clears throat> Excuse me, could I pay for my meal? Oh, of course, just having a moment with my Combank Smart Terminal. Tap away. Feel a stronger connection. With extra connectivity, you're always payment ready. There's more to love with the Combank Smart Terminal. Mm, it is a nice terminal. Eligibility criteria, fees and T's and C's apply. Hey, welcome to the Medicubes podcast, where we bring you all that's good, exciting and sometimes challenging in primary health care. I'm Chris Spee, joined by my good friends Kim Pointer and Rivka Hagen. Together we bring a wealth of experience and passion, as well as being in the thick of what's going on in our industry. We used to have a laugh, debrief and chat about all the big issues and what was happening in our own professional worlds and invite you to join us in this conversation. So join us and our invited guests every month to bring you a lighthearted take on the latest, greatest and controversial issues and a few pearls of wisdom along the way. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. A hearty welcome from Biripai country. And uh, Rivka Hagen here. I'm meeting you from Jajawurrung country. And a big hello from Turbul and Jagara country. Hello to all of our audience listening into the Medicubes podcast. We are so excited today on the 12th of May, International Nurses Day, to bring you a special recording all around the federal budget, which was just released a couple of days ago. I'm here with my co-hosts, Chris Mead, good morning, and Kim Pointer, hello to you also. And we will be joined by another special guest in a little while, so stay tuned. We're going to have some robust discussion with you all about all of the changes that have been announced on account of the federal budget. So good morning, Chris and Kim. What are your thoughts? Oh, look, the general practice note on me was a very exciting night on Tuesday night, pulling budget papers aside. You start watching the speech and then suddenly you start Googling. I'm going to tell our amazing listeners there was a very strong group chat going on between the three of us as we <laughs> found links and found documents and went deep. And then we're like, there's not enough detail here. What does this mean? Why is there just one line on a $450 million program? But it's been a pretty awesome few days trying to, to pull it apart and understand if all the hype that was there in the lead up to the budget, what it actually meant in the follow-up. What do you reckon, Kim? Yeah, I agree. I We heard the MBS task force prior to COVID, right? They had some great recommendations. Then we hit pause because, of course, we had a pandemic. And then we've had the Strengthening Medicare task force. And it's great to see some of the detail from both of those reports shining through. It's going to be a layered approach. There's no doubt about it. There's no rush. There's nothing that you need to swat up about and get really across for tomorrow. But you've certainly got time to take a breath and really distill this information. And hopefully that's what we can do with our frenzied night of the budget night and then the subsequent days, just trying to really unpack what's coming this year, what's coming next year and what your best preparedness is going to be. That's what we hope to share with you today. So we've got a, a fair whack to unpack. So let's start at the beginning and I guess the most meaningful announcements that are going to have an impact this year around the tripling of the bulk billing incentive items. So what I've taken away from the messaging there is that starting in November this year, so 2023, we're going to see a tripling of all of the bulk billing incentive item numbers, and they will be different depending on your rurality and your location with the exception of level A consults. So I think that's been a bit of a delineation to say that, and again, this is my understanding that the 10990, 10991 and equivalent item numbers, they will still be there in some form for level A consults, but they are not going to be the ones that are going to triple in value. So I guess the interpretation of that is that there is some recognition that we are not wanting to sort of encourage too much of that really fast medicine and very quick throughput, mm. but that anything for a level B consultation upwards is worthy of additional recognition for concession, pensioners and healthcare card holder patient cohorts. 
Kim, what have you got to uh, add to the conversation? Yeah, I, I want to really highlight that this has been the largest increase in the bulk billing incentive in 40 years of Medicare. That's so amazing, it is hey? an exciting time. No wonder we were all frantic in terms of our chatter about it on the night of the budget. So, look, I think something to say about the tripling of the incentive is the messaging that comes out of that for patients. And I think this is where we're going to run into some trouble because I've already seen this in the general population that the feedback is, oh, great, doctors are going to get triple the amount for their services on account of these changes. And that is not correct. So what is being incremented is the bulk billing incentive item, not the core Medicare rebate. So we need to be so careful around that messaging. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, Riff. I mean, when I started tripling, are you thinking you had great, but then you realize it's only for those target eligibility groups. And a lot of practices already had different billing policies for those um, groups. But then if you think about it on a, on a um, MM, triple M1, it's $6.60 to $20.65. I think hopefully most of the practices listening that are mixed or private billing, their gap would be more than that, I'd say probably at the moment, if they are that billing model. So I think it's going to make it a tough conversation in reception where patients think now that because there's that triple bulk billing incentive, they should be bulk billed, but a practice would still end up worse off. And a real shame would be all the hard work that was done over the last 12 months, 24 months for practices to move from being bulk billing to being mixed and private billing to suddenly undo that on a whim. So really take the time. And I think the point you made at the start of the episode, Kim and Riv, was that you don't have to rush to do anything. You know, this is all sort of November onwards and do the numbers and just go, look, if we did this, what does it mean? We know how many appointments we bulk bill. We know how many appointments, what our average gap is. What would that do to our bottom line? And don't go backwards. Going backwards will confuse patients and make it harder in your business. So be very careful, I think, before racing to make any promises around this. Yeah, exactly. And uh, look, as you might be aware too, through the Practice Managers Network on Facebook, we are currently running the annual salary survey. And part of the questioning in that is around the intention of practices and what their presumption will be in terms of the response to the, the change to the bulk billing incentive item both for concession patients, so these are the patients for which these bulk billing incentives apply, and what it's going to mean for private patients and what shift will be there because some of that other messaging that we've seen coming through is that practices are sort of being encouraged through the, the federal government messaging to moderate their gap fees on private patients on account of the tripling of the bulk billing incentive for concession patients. And what I'm getting through very strongly in this sort of early time as we're sort of tapping into the sentiment is that that's simply not going to happen. You know, practices are really intending to maintain their gap fees, certainly for private patients, and not pitching that down on account of what's going to happen for the concession patients. But what we're also starting to see coming through is that practices that are currently bulk billing will continue to bulk bill and they are very appreciative of that additional recognition there. So that's a positive message coming out of that as well. What about the new 60-minute consult item as well? Now we've got a level E consult item that's also starting in November. It's a new category. It's planned for patients with chronic conditions and complex needs. I think that's also an exciting addition. It really honours due time spent with clients that obviously need it. As you were talking about before, Rifka, it's a shining away from the quick medicine and really allowing the doctors to spend that quality time with the clients. Yeah, so look, I guess my take on that is that, yes, it's great that there is recognition of the longer time slot, the, the level E consultation that's going to come out. To, I guess, push back a little bit on that, what I am hearing a lot about as well is the disappointment that the actual rebate values for those longer consultations really aren't shifting all that much. And even with, you know, the 4% indexation happening towards the end of the year, that that doesn't really come close to matching the intent of what GPs had hoped to see there. And of course, you know, the budget's not ever going to be perfect and deliver everything for everyone at the one time. But that is some of the messaging that I'm hearing. 
I think also one of the really interesting things is it actually, if you said, so it's $184, I think that's the value of an ears. Yep. Uh, we know from our touchstone benchmarking data in Cubico, the average billings per hour of a GP in Australia, this is across the whole country, is $330 per hour. So there is definitely that disconnect there between the government is saying in their rebate, it's $184 in their, in their value of an hour, hour plus, $184. We know that the average billings per hour is 330 If a GP is working with these probably, I'm going to say more complex patients that are needing an E, are they basically going to be saying, I, t- I earn less because I spend more time with those patients? Which is a real interest, like, you know, uh, I, I know I'm sounding like a terrible accountant here, but that is, uh, I, I, I the first thing that jumped into my head is that how attractive will that be yeah. as, a, as, a, as, a, as a way to work? I think the messaging that's come out of the federal budget is actually crystal clear, which is to say that by and large, the rebate for services is the patient's rebate and not reflective of what the value of the service is in terms of payment to GPs. So I think there is a very strong message that private billing is the way forward, by and large, for patients who are able to afford to pay, if they are not concession patients or fitting into one of those sort of bulk billing incentive eligibility groups, that we are simply not going to see that shift of the core rebates to reflect anywhere near what the value of the service is or should be or is going to be as far as Medicare recognition is concerned. You said it much better than I said it. Uh, you know, I should have just, just handballed it to you at the start after giving my numbers out. What about VPE? Like we're seeing that come through labelled as my Medicare, and that's going to be something that practices need to be aware of is starting this year as well. And it's targeted and aimed again to really formalise that relationship between patients and, you know, their their clinical teams. And they're going to unlock, obviously, some telehealth sort of item numbers there. What's your take on that, um, Chris? I think my take is that any take we take in the next few days or weeks is probably cooking it a little bit early. I think the nerd in me was a bit disappointed with the lack of detail around it. And I think there'd been so much talk in the lead up to this budget about enrollment and VPE and everything like that, that we now have the little bit of something and the little bit of detail around my Medicare, but we don't actually have any of the details. So I wouldn't rush to go and do anything yet is my, would be my take on it because the trouble is we might be filling the information void with things that we've been hoping for in the budget that might've been out there that aren't quite ready for it. So that's sort of my first take on it was stay the ship, don't go to, to DEFCON 1. I think our software providers, our health system, our, all different layers, our PHNs are going to have to get their head around a lot. So don't rush to do something on that would be my first take. And I would agree with that too, Chris. We are still seeing sort of a lack of information around what the changes to the practice incentives program is going to mean and the workforce incentives payment, which is uh, supposedly to, of course, support the employment of nurses and allied health workers within our practice. There are some numbers being bandied around 60.2 million for an extended practice incentives program for the quality improvement payment. So that's kind of one angle of it. The workforce incentive payment is also going to change, but uh, it actually looks on first glance to be reasonably limited. My worry is that any changes to the workforce incentives payment for nurses and allied health workers and pharmacists and the like is still not going to cover the entirety of what it costs to employ our nursing workforce in order to really develop that team capability and really shift to that model of team-based care that the Strengthening Medicare Task Force program is kind of pitching for. So I agree, we need more detail in order to understand what that means. However, we can certainly continue to work to develop our team-based services, keep incorporating our nursing services into our business-as-usual programs, knowing that what comes next is going to be more supportive of that rather than less supportive of that. So we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And it's it's knowing your patient cohort and what services they need, I think, is one of the things that even if there was no mention of this word, my Medicare and the budget is a great thing to be doing as a practice in the current funding model, 
So deepening those relationships and knowing a patient cohort that you look after is really, really important. So I'd say keep going with that and, and keep a focus on what is funded today because we don't want to do things on a promise of funding two years from now and things like that. Make sure it's sustainable in your business for now. And some exciting things. I think nurse practitioners, we are on International Nurses Day while we're recording this, just as a, another reminder that nurse practitioners are, are going to see an increase in percentage of their rebates as well. They're going to be obviously a little bit more celebrated in case conferencing and acknowledged for their, their worthy contribution to primary care. And also another thing that I thought was really exciting and really over overdue is the chronic wound consumable scheme which again for people with those chronic wounds we've seen it's been a national issue for such a long time hasn't it we've been trying to have nurse-led clinics nurses are generally the people that are looking after chronic wounds but it's been untenable to have all of these expensive wound products being applied in primary care and another really exciting component of the budget which was well and truly buried so the extensive SWOT, you know, that we have all three of us and tried to compile all the information for you guys today is one of the recommendations that the Medicare Task Force Review, remember I said that happened pre-COVID, had recommended was to make some changes into the care planning chronic disease items. Now, these are not well known at this stage. So just go with us on this journey on, on what it might look like. And I think the budget, Kim said, it was they're committing to rewriting all the item numbers yes. to make them consistent with the recommendations. So yeah. I guess just to give everyone the phrase of the lens we're about to look at it from. Yeah, great. And so what the recommendations was is not to affect your bottom line as a practice. That's super important. That's what Chris was just underlining for you there. But just to change something that's been problematic and a bit of a thorn in, in general practice side is the 723 item number, which is team care arrangement item number. That's going to be removed, okay? And they're going to bundle that into your 721. But what the recommendation was, which is why you can hear the excitement in my voice, is they're going to be looking at chronic disease. Look, Think about the intention of what we're trying to do here with chronic disease is keep people out of hospital, minimise their complications, and also make sure they have better health outcomes. Now, what the Medicare Task Force Review found pre-COVID was that reviewing our clients resulted in better patient outcomes. So they're going to increase the dollar amount to incentivise practices to review their clients. So that is something to be celebrated getting rid of that administrative juggle that we often see with team care arrangements and it's quite bureaucratic in how long you have to wait and all that kind of stuff. Getting rid of that for oh, you, yep. yay, celebrate that. Yes, I was just like, yes, the pain, the pain, getting rid of the pain. Yeah, that's it. And there's also been the announcement, and, and this is still a little bit ethereal too, of a $2,000 per patient payment for uh, especially patients who are identified as, I guess, frequent flyers, for want of a better term, for hospital attendances. And those patients in some way are going to be identified by hospitals and incentivizing practices to really embrace those patients, provide additional care to them through that sort of incentive payment. And uh, again, the detail around that is, is not entirely clear just yet. I'd heard 10 visits. I don't know whether that's right or wrong, but I'd heard 10 visits in the past 12 months. I mean, that's just a really interesting question for a practice. Like, if the hospital's identifying them, but what if you identify them? And who's going to be coordinating all this and the roles of PHN? There's just so many questions that, that come out of each one of these little announcements that I think, as we said at the start, let's not all rush to find solutions just yet. They're going to come. Yeah, part of the wording says GPs will receive a 2000 upfront payment if they register a patient who's been identified by the hospital system as a regular emergency department user and they'll receive an additional $500 for reducing that patient's hospital attendances. So I think it's going to be the secondary tier that's going to highlight and flag those clients from our early reading. What about the Medicare integrity? What is it, $29.8 million over four years to, to focus on Medicare integrity? I think the back half of last year, there was a lot of noise. Was it $2 billion? I think was the number bandied around as, as, as lack of integrity. Um, I think at the time I said, show me $2 billion floating around our system. 
and where that might be. But what do you what do you think of the, the announcement of $29.8 million over four years for an integrity piece of work? Look, to me, it really speaks of the need for practices to really beef up their framework around accountability and responsible use of Medicare items. And this is by no means to be accusatory at all, but you can certainly predict that the audit activity is going to ramp up very significantly. And so the, you know, uh, wasn't aware, don't know, um, just, you know, flying under the radar, that kind of dialogue is no longer going to, to fly. So I would, as a practice, add this onto your risk registers right now that you need to start preparing your billing and you know responsibility and, and accountability framework around Medicare compliance because this is going to really ramp up. And if there are concerns for practices, now's the time to really stare that in the in the eye and look at what do we need to do as a practice to ensure that our compliance is solid and effective because you know you don't want to end up in a situation where you might get some better rebates some better incentives and then you get hit and your practice is required to repay significant sums of money it's going to hit practice viability, which is already sort of showing up now as a, a key issue for practices. And so getting it right from the time of billing and service provision is going to be more important than ever. And that's not saying it ever was not important. <laughs> and Riff, I think one of the really key things there is you just said getting it right at time of billings. One of the specific measures that was actually called out was a limitation on the duration of backdated patient billing claims. Like they've actually called that out. And I think uh, we always sort of thought we can go back to fix it later or we can do this and fill out the form and, and send it off. But if there's going to be some limitations around that, having our amazing retention team and our, and our doctors primed up on the schedule and booking the right, billing the right things at the right point in time is going to become even more important. And another bit I noticed of that is the, the, the permission of data sharing with Services Australia. It was actually called out in, into stop fraudulent claims. So... I think totally right that those two things is going to be very important to, to what happens. Interesting to see the urgent care clinics and the after hours care continuing to grow and be rolled out and some more funding for those programs. What's, what's your take on sort of the continued growth of those ones? Yeah, I think they're fantastic. And you can see um, in the detail as well, they're going to provide some scholarship funding to James Cook University for, you know, obviously the GPs trying to attract them into rural locations and support them in their upskilling there. I also really acknowledge that the nurses, again, there's going to be scholarships there to assist attracting nurses into more that graduation scholarship roles and so forth, train the trainer. And also, again, I'm going to call out the Australian Primary Nurse Association because, you know, they were leaders in this space whereby they had, when new nurses were coming into primary care, they had some mentor programs supporting and bolstering that so that people weren't feeling isolated. We are team-based workforce usually, so that there was obviously that mentorship model that can sit behind that. So I can see that those things have been acknowledged in the future discussions of really supporting and bolstering that multidisciplinary team approach moving forward. So for me too, with regard to especially the urgent care centres, I think because there's going to be some more dollars thrown at making them effective and available and by stealth then in incentivising GPs to want to perhaps participate a little bit more in those clinics, that's got to be a good thing. That's going to help with the reduction of those emergency department presentations. And we're seeing a lot of activity happening already now with some state and federal cooperation around the funding of the urgent care centres, the priority primary care centres as well. But again, to just kind of flip that on its head, that is not universally welcomed either. So there is a view from private practices that this is duplication of services and it is encroaching on their turf as well. So again, it's not all positivity and happiness. We just need to also you know, ensure that, that we bring those counter viewpoints to really acknowledge that not everyone is pleased about any of these measures that are being put forward as is always going to be the case. Welcome back everyone for part two of this special budget episode. 
where we've been unpacking, discussing, trying to get our heads around everything that was in the budget. And we thought, you know what, the three of us, we need to get some extra insights, some extra wisdom. So we reached out to Bruce Willett, who is the RACGP National Vice President and Queensland RACGP Chair, as well as being a practice owner himself here in, in Brisbane, uh, where I'm based. And we, we asked Bruce to come and join us today. So Bruce, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. I, I hope I can keep the standard up. I hope it's more like the Godfather <laughs> part two than the Matrix part two. <laughs> wow. Yes. We'll be judged by the sequel. Um, that is a very important point. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And if you've just jumped in and fast forwarded to 20 minutes through the episode, just to hear Bruce, thanks for joining us. Uh, we know you've got a big fan base that will be, will be doing that. But Bruce, we always start with our amazing guests by asking them for a random fun fact. What is your random fun fact for today? So my, my random fun fact is just something I just learned recently that is that, that penguins are actually from the North Pole. So the term penguin was first used to describe a bird that looks a bit like a, what we'd call a penguin, but bigger and thicker set, looks like a giant black and white puffin, actually. And they were found in Newfoundland and being flightless, and apparently they tasted good. They were hunted to extinction. Oh. And because of the similarity of, a, of appearance to the South Pole penguins, the South Pole penguins got the name, and luckily for them, they don't taste as good or more good. difficult to catch. <laughs> <laughs> that's evolution for you you know the faster ones made it because uh they, they survive so the north pole ones are also called great orcs oh. nothing well, to do I with the lord of the rings that. yes oh, well, yeah, we're getting close to hobbiton and new zealand when we're down at the south pole so mm. that's a that's a very random and very amazing fun fact that i'm going to steal and use the next time i'm in one of those weird seminars and they say please tell us a random fun fact i'm going to memorize <laughs> that one to have it for my icebreaker but Bruce, we're really excited to have you with us today with both the practicing GP, with the GP owner and with the college's hats on. So many, many hats for you to wear today. And I think the thing that I'd probably love to know most of all as we get started was from your point of view, what was the most exciting announcement in the budget? What was the bit that you were just excited to see and, and had been working on? Oh, look, it was a very exciting budget from the, from the I'll start with the RAC GP hat, yes, many is, hats. That, is that we got almost everything we asked for and that's not something that happened. So we had a crisis meeting in Canberra. We had a thing where we met, I think, almost 200 MPs, and we pitched to them individually, essentially, this budget, almost exactly what happened. And so to see most of that come through, or in fact, almost all of it come through, to be honest, far exceeded expectations. So it was really a great result. That's really interesting for us to know, because like, I don't think that sort of sometimes makes it out there that this was actually had been lobbied for and asked for. When we've been pulling the budget apart this week, that's not something we've been talking about. Oh, no, this is a culmination of years of work, I'll say. And and look, and part of it has been to encourage GPs to price their services at what they need to be priced at rather than accept a Medicare payment mm. that's inadequate and try and reduce their services to fit the payment which is just the wrong way to yeah. do it. And I'll be frank, I, I think that's what had been happening for a lot of GPs. And it was not doing ourselves a favour as our reputation to do it that way. And it was definitely not doing a patient a favour. So from my point of view, this campaign started a couple of years ago when we really encouraged that. And because, you know, quite frankly, if I'm the government and 95 or sorry, 90% of services are being bulk billed, why am I, why am I going to? invest in Medicare. If you're willing to take that, that's, don't whinge. So I think that was the first step into the, getting this outcome is pricing the services around quality uh, rather than the other way around. And then the second part was um, really clearly crystallizing what it is that what we're asking and putting that really clearly and succinctly. And I have to say that it, it, it worked. I mean, not 100% of what we wanted and some things that we would rather not be in there but I think it exceeds what you could realistically expect. And what about for you as an owner, Bruce? What was sort of, you know, if you took the college hat off and you were just as an owner reading this budget, what, what got you most excited to see in there? Yeah, look, the 30% increase of WIPs, are huge. That's great. You know, the, the, for my practice, I have a pretty big practice and the workforce incentive payments barely touch the sides of my mm. cost of employment, nurses and pharmacists and 
other other people. Um, so the, the increase of that, you know, if the government is serious about team-based care, that's been a really important part of it. And look, I, I do think the, the obviously the, the big centrepiece is the $3.5 billion in the tripling of the bulk billing incentive payment, which is exactly what we asked for. The AMA asked for, for a doubling uh, after we asked for tripling. But we got that tripling. And I think the, the other side of the coin of, you know, properly funding a, a quality service is the need for people who can't afford to pay those gaps to actually have a means of getting care. And I think it's distressing for GPs and I think it's actually distressing for the staff in practice who have to actually, you know, look people in the eye and, and deal with those situations that, you know, our receptionists and other staff to actually deal with that. So having some relief for those people, I think, is really good for everyone in terms of our kind of moral injury that we have on a regular basis in dealing with that situation. So it, it was one of the asks and glad to see it come up. Yeah, and thank you so much from going from double and pushing them to triple, right? And yeah. I'm just curious to know a lot of, yeah, the big, you know, we're all going at the big, you know, high five and, and fist here because it's a huge win. And I'm just curious to know a lot of practices have moved away from bulk billing and now they've gone to different funding structures. And I'm just wondering the change in the bulk billing incentive. You've mentioned we want to have particular target marginalised communities really having those incentives applied so that they can receive good, generous care. But I'm just wondering, what do you see and envisage with the changes to the bulk billing incentive? How will that impact practices in our communities? Yeah, so I guess the important thing is that practices still have the choice and that's that's absolutely key to do do it the way they need but i think w- what this does do is give practices a realistic choice because quite frankly it was getting to the stage where the medicare rebate was so inadequate it was just look it was just getting impossible to bulk bill pensioners and children and keep the doors open and provide a quality service so i think there is now some choice around that that we didn't have before and i think that's the the difference I did get asked by a couple of journalists who said, oh, you're now going to be making so much money from pensioners and children that you should be able to review, reduce your fees to everyone else. And I, I did point out that it is still below what the Medicare payment would have been had Medicare been fully indexed from the beginning. And it is still a substantial discount on our services and people need to know that. But it does give, as, as I said, practices some choice to, to not have to cross-subsidise to the crazy extent that they were having to do before. Yeah, and, and wasn't that interesting messaging, Bruce, coming from the federal government, actually, I think it might have been on budget night to say that their hope was that practices would be able to reduce out-of-pocket fees for non-concession patients on account of the generosity towards those concession patients. And, you know, I guess most of us were kind of going, hmm, yeah, not sure how that's going to happen or, you know, whether that will be. And, you know, the messaging coming out is that absolutely that's not going to be happening. That's wishful thinking and a bit of uh, sort of, you know, pie in the sky, but nice try. But it does, as we discussed before you you came on, we are concerned that some of that messaging going out to the community adds to the difficulty for practices, for practice managers, for practice staff to actually accurately convey the story of what this is going to mean uh, going forward. So not entirely uh, helpful there. Uh, But Bruce, I'd love to uh, just tap into your thoughts too around the development of the My Medicare program. Tell me a little bit about what you know about that and what you think that might look like down the track. So to respond to your first thing, I think that's absolutely right. And and I know Nicole Higgins, our president, has been out saying this will not affect the bulk billing rate for the people not affected. And I've been saying the same. The, the problem is, of course, we don't have the same voice as the treasurer. And so that's going to cause problems. And I, I suspect by the time people are listening to this, the, we will have had lots of uh, pensioners and others come in and saying, why aren't you bulk billing me now? Um, not understanding that this doesn't roll out for some months. So I think that will have already happened by the time this is released, but this is certainly early days that we're recording it. The My Medicare 
it's not a great deal of money at this stage and it is very targeted. So it's 230, 40 million, um, about roughly 100 million going towards the hospital frequent admissions group over the next four years and roughly, I think, 112 going to aged care services. The the fear is that this is the foot in the door for capitation, which the RACGP and others fiercely oppose. We, we don't want that. I'm not too worried about this because this to me looks more like an extension of our current PIP payments. We already get paid block funding for providing you know services and in terms of the PIP payments. The only thing that's different in this is patient consent. So currently PIP payments are done by a, a big computer algorithm in the Department of Health who decides who are, who is and is not our patients. And I'm not sure that's the best way for that to be decided. I, I do think it would make more sense for PIP payments to be decided on where, who, the, who our patients think are their doctors. And so I think the fact that it's targeted and and limited is is reasonable, but you know I think we need to maintain some vigilance around the kind of capitation thing and we not go too far down that role. We've seen how well it works in the UK. Um, their health system is in total meltdown. They have gone from being a, a fairly cost efficient healthcare system to being a very cost inefficient health system with huge delays, and it's because they failed to fund general practice and recognise general practice. And there's a parliamentary report about general practice that's just gone to the UK government uh, that recognises that they've screwed up because they haven't recognised general practice and and it's a complete admission of that. So I hope I've referred many of our government members and MPs to that report and encouraged them to read it. Oh, what an interesting comment that you've just made there, Bruce, in terms of drawing those parallels between the interpretation of voluntary patient enrolment and capitation, because we know that notion of capitation is extremely challenging for many GPs and, and for many practice managers as well. That is not the way that they would like to see the system develop. To what extent do you think the messaging around that you know, VPE is not capitation, to what extent do you think the messaging around that has been promoted in terms of promotion to to general practices and practice managers. And the reason that I ask that is that there did seem to be sort of, you know, some sort of stealth around that linkage. And I'm really heartened to hear you voice that distinction between the two. That is not what's required. Is there going to be some additional messaging coming out from the RACGP around that? What what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I, to be honest, I think the, the responsibility is on the government to, to provide that message. This is this is their system. They need to sell it to GPs if they want GPs to, to take it up and made that exact comment to the health minister. He knows the abhorrence that GPs and practice managers have of the idea of capitation mm-hmm. simply because we've seen what happens. You know, it, it's gone very badly in the UK so I do think that they need to do a better job of selling that because the V stands for voluntary. And so if they don't sell it properly, practices just will not do it. And of course, the other issue is that we've pointed out to the health ministers, all of them around this country, is that the payroll tax just breaks it. Mm. So the moment that you share any of that uh, my Medicare money to any of the practitioners, it doesn't matter if you have the ridiculous... Nine million FPOS machines and bank accounts, <laughs> and, accounts. And, and a separate sign out and a separate web web page and and everything. The moment you share some of that money, then payroll tax will apply, and you know five or six percent will go straight to the states and won't touch the sides of general practice. So I actually think until they sort that out, we're pretty safe from my Medicare going anywhere. The other thing I'll point out about the um. My Medicare thing is that at the last moment from the strengthening Medicare to the budget, it changed names from my GP to my Medicare. Yeah, subtle messaging there. Just to come back to the linkage of the issues around state payroll tax 
and that sort of independence of practitioners within the practice units. And it's certainly been my argument all along that the team-based care model is kind of fraught when we think about the independence of practitioners and that how do we actually make that gel. And I certainly picked up the wording around especially the funding for the hospital frequent flyers of the $2,000 that's being raised as a payment to GPs for that avoidance. And I thought that's a really interesting way to message that, to protect that independence model of the practitioners too. So yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that sentiment. Yeah, and, and so I guess one of the things we're, we're saying is that, to your point exactly, that the money should go more towards increasing the WIPs than the my Medicare slash my GP, and we got that too. So um, pretty, pretty well chuffed. Done. Mm. Yeah, well done, Bruce. And I'm all for, and we are recording on International Nurses Day. I know I've said this probably about three times during this podcast. Guess who's the nurse in the room? But I really. I'm interested from your perspective about when we're talking about team-based care and I'm really about the right person doing the right roles in the general practice setting and particularly nurses have a strength in chronic disease management health assessments. There's no doubt about it. Buried in the detail, and we've had to really look for this, is the Medicare Task Force review pre-COVID detail around the changes that they recommended for chronic disease funding and health assessments. And I'm just curious to know your thoughts on this. I've just had a look at Chris shared an OSDOC document with me this morning and it says, you know, the loss of 723 has been labelled as a pointless brain bleed by most GPs. And I'd agree with that. You know, the the administrative gymnastics that we have to do to try and look after our clients and the community, that's something that they're trying to iron out and, and assist us a bit more with. Yeah, uh, I agree. I think it, it it's that's prob- you know that's obviously one of the things that we didn't ask for, and one of the things that um, I think is a problem that we have lost that payment because it does take quite a lot of time and effort to prepare those team care arrangements. And I can tell you the argument from the government is that they have been concerned actually about the lack of the reviews of care plans. So their 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 concern yes. so is that you know that chronic disease management should be ongoing and. A, a continuous thing so that they would have expected to see more of the reviews so that it, it's quite bizarre in in a way that the underuse of the reviews has led to the pressure on getting rid of the initial ones to try and encourage more reviews yeah and i celebrate that because often what i hear is people go you know we don't want to over service our chronic disease clients the intention behind it is to keep people out of hospitals so i'm seeing it twofold in that you know, they're going to remunerate the practices to keep people out of hospitals and reduce attendances and incentivize them to review their patients with chronic disease management. So I'm celebrating it here because I think it's going to be a, a great thing for our community members and keeping people well. So the, the obvious thing is, so the, use the reviews. So the practice managers set up the systems that the reviews get done for the, for the GPs use them the problem is not that we're being accused of overusing them that we're being accused of underusing them and so i think that's a really important message to get to my colleagues but also to the practice managers you know we need to be doing more reviews and i think that's that's the lesson out of this i think it's one of the very few times in i've ever heard us saying we're under utilizing something and we should be doing more of this so this i think that probably brings me to another point that we noticed in the budget was nearly nearly 30 million dollars to this medicare integrity unit that's going to be rolled out. I think probably Bruce on the on the back of some pretty interesting, crazy media coverage on the back half of last year. What's your take on where they're going to be putting thirty million dollars in into this space? I got to tell you, I have no idea. <laughs> Great. Um, I, I can tell you what what our ask will be is that yeah. uh, it needs to be on the education and the, and mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, making it simpler rather than the coming around and smacking us over on the noses with the rolled up newspaper that, that seems to be the, the approach that happens now. You saw the, the statistics about, you know, underbilling being as much of a problem as overbilling. I'm going to say that it, that it is a gendered issue. I feel that my female colleagues underbill much more than the male colleagues. And I think that mm. it contributes to the, to the gap in the pay gap for, for female GPs. And so I, I think part of it needs to be education and we ne- it shouldn't, we need to not fr- frighten people out of billing appropriately as well. Get paid for the work you've done. 
I think is always one of the things, you know, yeah, feel appropriate. Yep. And, and look, I actually, I'm going to say something controversial. I think one of the things that having patients put in a contribution to their service has mean that patients are watching us. And I think that's the appropriate person to be deciding whether or not I'm billing appropriately rather than someone sitting in an office in front of a computer in Canberra. I would prefer, again, my patients being deciding this rather than algorithms. I guess it's the same point I was making about the, the PIP payments. I couldn't agree with you more about that, Bruce. And I've also heard whispers around the transparency of what items are being bulk billed or billed under a, a patient's Medicare profile that there will be some technological advances coming through where perhaps, especially for bulk build services, there is going to be some sort of notification mechanism to ensure that patients are fully informed of what is being billed on their behalf because some of that transparency uh, still is missing at this point in time with practices not adequately performing their obligations under the bulk billing rules that are in place at the moment in terms of, you know, uh, authenticating services and signing off on that and, you know, properly authorising that. So I think some of those technological advancements will also really push practices to just double check what they are billing on behalf of patients and ensuring the correctness around that. And that was certainly a focus of our earlier discussion as well. Yeah, look, I, look, I agree. And, I, and I, again, you know, bottom line is I prefer my patients overseeing my billing than a, than a computer or, or a bureaucrat. That, that would be my default. Hey, we're coming to the end of our time um, together today. I think for me, one of the things with my, with my practice manager hat on and, and the amount of information that's suddenly flowing about this week is, uh, Bruce, if you were you know, catching up with your PM later on today or next week, or you probably already have, what are, what are two or three things that over the next few weeks or months that you'd be doing in your practice to be on top of all this, these changes that are coming through? Yeah, look, uh, I think we have to look at the en enrollment side of things. I know we're all nervous about that. But again, as you know, the, the long telehealth uh, appointments are going to be linked to enrollment. And I know that that will probably cause some grief among some people. But look at the alternative. It, I think for, for something to be implemented, it, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be better than all the other alternatives. Now, what we've, what we've been suffering from now is, I'm sure we've all had this, you know, that, you know, your 25-year-old bloke wants a telehealth appointment and he doesn't attend the practice once a year. He probably attends once every three or four years if you're lucky, but he still thinks that, you know, your practice is his practice and thinks that he should be able to get that. So having a mechanism where it's in the patient's hands to decide whose practice there is rather than, again, an algorithm, I think is actually good. But so I would suggest we need to think about how are you going to enroll patients because I think it might be a little bit of a gold rush between as people... Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm hearing that across a lot and, of places, yeah. And, you know, November, I think there might be a little bit of a grab and, you know, and Woolies and Instascript and things are going to want to get in there as well. It does need to be linked to, I think, you know, a practice where people can actually be seen physically if they need to i think that's really essential thanks so much bruce that has uh, been some definite food for thought i like your uh, spicy thoughts throughout i look forward to uh having a listen to them back um just i guess to round things up today kim any final thoughts yeah i'm really wanting everyone just to take a breath and read the information go and have some really great quality meetings with your team and work out what the best next step for you is yeah, look, I'd uh, I'd echo those uh, those sentiments as well. There is a lot to unpack, and I think we recognise that we probably could have filled a two hour podcast with uh, all of the changes coming up. Eat that elephant one bite at a time is the way that you'd want to approach this. Yeah, look at your systems, look at your processes, and really start bedding down your private practice services and look at the new opportunities, especially around bulk billing, incentive, tripling coming up, not for a few months yet, so it's a bit down the mm. track, but make sure that your business modelling is robust to ensure the ongoing viability of your practice, hugely important. I agree. And I think how we share this information with our practice team is really important because there could be people on our front desk for reception who haven't seen anything, have only seen what was on Sunrise 
There's suddenly there's this there and they've got to answer questions to patients about why we're not bulk billing. So think about how you can bring your, your amazing reception team, your amazing nursing team and your amazing GP team on this journey of sharing this information around with them, maybe some real facts out to the team with an F8 message around the practice or something in the tea room um, could be a really great way to keep everyone on a really evidence-based view on the budget. Bruce, thank you so much for your time today. I know it's been a very busy week for you with, with, with Budget Week. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Oh, look, first of all, huge thank you for the invitation. Really enjoyed coming. We all know that practice managers are the most important people in the building. So, <laughs> so lovely to like be that. here. I, I'll just echo those points, you know, that I think making sure that you get the, the private billing side of things correct is really important. I think that we've, there's a long lead in. There is a there is a lot to digest, which is actually a good thing because it means we've managed to get a lot of things across the lines. But there is a, a long lead in time and a lot of time to get these things into place and plan for it. So there's a lot of time to actually bring the whole team together over this. You know, the doctors, receptionists, the nurses, you know, all of the other parts of the team, depending on what team members you have, so that everyone has a clear understanding of what you're doing and why you're doing it in this next couple of months. So that's the good news thing about it. And so I, it just remains for me to wish you happy Nurses Day. Oh, amazing. And congratulations to you and Nicole and everyone at the college for your lobbying to, to make these changes happen. I think sometimes in health, we are focused on the bad things, but these are some wins for general practice and we need to make sure we celebrate them because we don't always get to celebrate. Thank you to all our amazing listeners for listening in and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Medicubes podcast. Make sure you subscribe via your favorite podcast listening app so you don't miss an episode. Medicubes is brought to you by Cubico, MediCoach and Medical Business Services with technical support from the awesome crew at Talking Health Tech. This podcast presents information of a general nature and we recommend that you obtain professional advice for your individual circumstances always. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions and suggestions for future topics on the show. Make sure you visit us via the Minicubes website, which you can access via the show notes of this episode. Also, if you're enjoying the show, write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with someone who might get some value from it so we can continue to share these important messages with more people. Speak to you next time.